wondering what you want to be when you grow up? Have you wondered how to get into a certain line of work and never known where to start? My name is John Manigon. I'm a career fly-in, fly-out worker, working as an electrical instrumentation technician in all aspects of heavy industry, including mining and oil and gas, in Australia and abroad. Given my limited exposure to other industries, I've always wondered what exactly do people do when they go to work. Tune in as we discuss from the mundane to the mind-blowing, and everywhere in between, where we garner insight from real industry professionals living the job. What better place to go for first-hand career advice? So if you're a school leaver or a concerned parent of a school leaver looking for some direction, or perhaps you're having a midlife crisis and looking for a career change, you've come to the right place. Welcome, classmates, to the working class. G'day classmates, today I'm talking to Wayne Fielder, listening to hear about how Wayno has travelled halfway around the world to now call Australia home and how his energetic exuberance as a child led him to his passion of coaching tennis and kept him away from a career in accountancy. Welcome, welcome, welcome Wayne Fielder. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for um, participating in this, mate. This is, um, I've got to say, the most um, interesting and cool place that I've done a podcast so far. We're, we're here at the Kansas International Tennis Centre, and you can hear the tennis balls being hit in the background. And, um, yeah, I'm normally just sitting at home doing this, mate. So it's... Um, oh, this is the way to do it. We've got, <laughs> yeah, no one can see what we can see, but we've got blue skies behind us. We've got mountain ranges. And people hitting balls. Yeah, this is uh, this is how to spend a Friday morning, mate. <laughs> um, maybe we'll just start with um, you telling us what you do here, Wayne. Yeah, so yeah, so I'm the head coach here at the Kansas International. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of been here 18 months. Walked in here with 10 kids, I think, in the program, wow. and uh, maybe sort of 50 or 60 memberships. And we're at a stage now in sort of 18 months where we. Uh, up over sort of 300 memberships, between mm. three and 350, and we've got maybe 250, 250 kids in the program. So, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a crazy 18 months. What with wow. COVID as well, but that kind of thing, the COVID has kind of helped us a little bit here as well. So, yeah. yeah so, how's he- that? Well, I think uh, well, tennis was a lucky sport in the fact that it was the one sport, along with golf, uh, where uh, it's a non-contact sport. Mm-hmm. So all your other sports broke down pretty quickly. You right. know, your soccer, your netball, your rugby, anything that was contact. Yeah. But tennis kind of got a little bit of, um, oh, we, you know, we sort of fluked out a little bit, lucked out, and Tennis Australia had some good relationships with the count, with the government, and um, managed to keep things, you know, rocking and rolling. Admittedly, to start with, it was uh, maybe sort of one or two people on a court. Mm. Um, but yeah, within, God, geez, being far off Queensland, within six weeks, I think I was back up running groups again. So. Yeah, and then we've built, you know, a lot of numbers up because a lot of kids weren't doing other sports. Yeah. So right. all of a sudden we picked up a, a database of loads and loads of kids that would normally mm. play rec- rugby, netball, whatever it is. And they came over to tennis and gave it a shot. And you're um, also now closely affiliated with the Edge Hill Club? Yeah, so we got two other clubs as well. We've got the Edge Hill Tennis Club and we've got Freshwater Tennis Club as well. Um, so 
Well, just and the great thing about that is those two clubs are you know within sort of you know five to eight k of where mm. we are at the tennis center. So we've kind of built like a little hub, um, and it's not about monopolising as much as it's about um, taking up opportunities. And also, you know, one of the big things we do with our program is that if any kid can't make a tennis lesson, mm. we give them makeup options. Well, now the great thing is we got makeup options in two other locations, so they can pretty much do a makeup six days a week. You know, so it just makes it much better for the customer as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so many, you know, I've got young kids. Um, so many organisations or, or activities that they're involved in don't don't really offer that, you know. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I've, my daughter, she used to do dance. And, mm. I mean, you know, nothing frustrated me more than if we had to miss a lesson because right. she was sick or she had to go to the doctor. And, uh, you know, you'd speak to the teacher and they say, oh, well, that is what it is, you know. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, can we do a makeup? No, 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 that's not part of what we do. So that's, <laughs> you know, I, I think I've learned from my kids' sports, um, you know, the frustrations that, that I experienced. Mm. I've made sure that my parents won't, you know, won't have those same frustrations. Mm. So, um... I figure we'll take it a step back. Um, judging by your accent, you're not a Cairns local. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, born in the UK. Yeah. Um, done 30 years in the UK in a big city called Portsmouth on the south coast. Mm. Sort of um, about 60 or 70k south of London. Okay. Um, and then when I was 29, 30, I came out to Australia. I was sponsored over here. Um, as so a, yeah, as a tennis player, as a tennis coach. Oh, tennis coach. Yeah, as a tennis coach. Yeah. Mm. So that's a that's a that's a big long story. You want me to go into that one? Sure. Why not? Okay. Um, well, I guess like initially, uh, I was never meant to be a tennis coach. You know, I think um, when I was a kid, when I was at you know primary school and high school, I was pretty much in six or seven teams. You know, I was in the hockey team, mm. badminton, squash, tennis, football, soccer, as you know, you guys called it. Mm. Um, and just loved everything, loved all the sports. Were you naturally gifted as a sportsman or were you one of them really t tenacious kind of kids with... Um, just, tenacious. Yeah. Yeah, okay. super tenacious, hardworking. Um, I didn't realise how hardworking I was mm. um, probably until I started coaching myself and realised mm. that my work ethic was probably a little bit different to others. Um, but I just loved it. It wasn't, you know, I was never forced. I just loved being out on the court or, or being out on the soccer field or, you know, my mum used to, she used to get up me because I wasn't at home enough, you know, in the afternoons and the evenings helping right. her out. You know, all I wanted to do after school was go into the table tennis room or, or go and hit the field and go and, you know, kick balls into the goal or, or be on the tennis court. That was just how I always was. You some, know? some would argue that that's um, a pretty healthy way for a kid to grow loved up. Loved it. Love my life. So honestly, <laughs> yeah, like it's funny. I feel sorry for the kids nowadays. You know, I think... Um, I think you know the amount of technology that's going mm. on, and, and the, you know you talk, you hear about cyberbullying and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Man, I literally was one of those kids that was swinging out of trees. Yeah. Like, and I love that crap. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I spend a lot of time with my mates and my cousins and, and all those sort of guys, mm -hmm. and it was a great lifestyle. You know, yeah. and I wish my kids had that same lifestyle, but things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah, yeah, massively. Yeah, massively. I mean, I didn't have a phone. I don't think I had a phone until I was probably about in my early twenties. You know. A mobile uh, phone. Mobile phone. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. I was 26 when I got mine. Did you really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it's. Uh, but I, you know, I loved what what it was all about, and mm. I guess um, tennis became a bit more dominant. I guess when I went to high school, I had a, a guy called Colin Tudor who was a deputy head of the school, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> he had a massive passion for tennis. Loved his tennis, and he started up a little tennis group um, in the first year of school at high school. So that would have been grade eight back then. 
and uh, I think there was probably about 10, 12 of us signed up for tennis. And uh, I guess, fortunately for him, he had a good bunch of kids. Yeah. Um, we were all um, naturally sporty kids, um, had a good work ethic, mm. uh, cracking friendship, no real bad eggs in there, you know, just good, good bunch of kids. You know, a lot of them are my best friends now even, you know. Wow. Um, and uh, as a deputy head, he could pull some strings and um, started getting us some coaching with local coaches around the area. We then started playing competitions and tournaments. So I guess straight away, it's, it, one thing you'll probably find, or, you know, is that I actually started tennis quite late. Um, I played tennis with my mum. She's a massive tennis fan, but mm. um, never really got into coaching and all that sort of stuff until... What, what would you call quite late? Uh, well, I played socially with my mum and stuff when I was probably um, eight, mm. eight or nine. Um, but I didn't really get coaching until I was, what, 10, 11 mm. um, in group format. So, but still got to a, a good level within the group because we used to train three or four times a week. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad always had it. You know, he's, my dad's a pretty tough guy, but a, a beautiful guy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, actually adopted me. Funny enough, I don't know my natural dads, um, oh, well. but uh, this guy took me on when I was two, so he's the dad I know, and I love him for that. He took us on. Mm. Not many dads can can do that, you know, nowadays. No, that's right. Um, so, and he was always like, Wayne, you're going to be an accountant. You're going to be an accountant, you know? <laughs> no idea why he chose that. I think because he had businesses himself. Um, it was just something I think he realised that accountancy was something that every business needed, mm. you know? So... <laughs> And it's funny, like, the the older generation, I think you'll agree, is um, they had their perceptions on what everyone should be and what what was a good job. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think so. Like, um, yeah, it's funny how I probably allowed myself to be channeled in that way by my dad. You know, Mm -hmm. you're going to go to you're going to go to college, you're going to go to university. Um, And I followed that pathway, you know, because of what he told me to do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not there now. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing now. How far down that road did you go? Well, uh, so, you know, I went through high school. Yeah. Um, and then um, it's different like back in the UK. You have to go to college for two years before you can go to university. You don't just come out of grade 12 like you do in Australia and then into university. Oh, really? So you have to go to college for two years. And during that two years, I've done um, A-levels mm-hmm. um, in um, English language, accountancy and business. Mm. And... Um, I realized really quickly that accountancy was not where I was going to go. Like I just did not enjoy it. Mm. Frustrated the hell out of me. I wasn't yeah. particularly good at it. And it's not a maths thing. Um, you know, I've, I've done pretty well at maths at school, but just no interest whatsoever in ledgers and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and income and balance sheets and all that sort of yeah. stuff. It drove me freaking nuts. I'm hearing you. Yeah. So, um, so as a result, yeah, never went down that accountancy, you know, that accounting channel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess coming back a little bit, um, whilst I was, I guess when I got to about 14, um, I, the, the, the guy that was coaching me at the time, he was in a, a tennis club back in the UK. Mm. And um, he said, Wayne, he said, do you want to help out with the little kids? I said, yeah, whatever, you know. He's, he said, I'll give you a bit of, bit of cash. I said, yeah, yeah, no worries. I don't, give, I don't care about the money. I'm just happy to help, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I was getting in there and um, I was um, there going there on a Saturday morning and uh, working with all the little kids. And I think... Straight away, um, there was a lady that used to work for this coach, and I think she sort of channeled me pretty quickly and realised that uh, that I probably had something quite natural with kids, mm. uh, a natural enthusiastic personality, something the kids related to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always been a pretty upbeat sort of a person, you know, 
if I see someone, I've, I've always, I think I've always got a pretty good energy, you know. What I've noticed in, in my observation of you with, with coaching, typically with, with the teenage kids where, there's, where there could be a bit of attitude and maybe pulling back into line, I mean, you don't take any of that nonsense from those kids. Nope. And that, and that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've noticed. Yeah. Um, how important do you think that is? Yeah, like um, I think it's about balance. Yeah. So um, I mean, firm, firm but fair. Firm yeah? but fair, and, yeah. and firm but fun. Yeah. Like you know, at the same time as I, I might be getting up a kid. So one of my most common quotes, you know, I'll st- if I got a group of teenagers, mm. I'll stop them and I'll go, right, guys, what is my number one hate in the world? And they all put their hand up and go, lazy teenagers. No, it's, it's, you know, it's a given. Like, they know that. Right. And I'm like, right, let's find some energy. Let's do this, okay? You know, where are you at right now out of 10? And in their head, they might give me a, they might give me all their hands, they'll give me a five or a six. Yeah. I'm like, right, guys, I need you to lift it by two numbers, you know? So, and if they're not doing it, I'll give them a little kick up the bum. They might have to do a couple of burpees or push-ups or whatever. But at the same time, I'm high-fiving them. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I keep it real balanced so they understand that slackness won't be tolerated. Mm-hmm. But not because... I'm being an arsehole, mm. but because I want them to enjoy playing well. Yeah. You know, and the, the more effort they put in, the better the results they're going to get. And I want them to enjoy that feeling. Yeah. You know, so that's how they're. And you know what? And, and as well, John, my job isn't just about being a tennis coach and making them better tennis players. I'm a real believer in creating decent human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want them to have that understanding and that work ethic moving forwards. Yeah. You know, so. And I think kids as a whole respect, um, respond well to that. Like, um, not so much authoritarian but somebody who knows what's best for them and um helping them down that path you know? yeah i mean i've mentored kids oh for god knows how many years mm. like you know um and when i say mentor kids i mean like you know every kid that i take on the tennis court i feel like i'm in a mentoring role straight away but then yeah. quite often i'll extend that so i've you know probably in the 12 years 13 years i've been in australia i think i've probably put about 15 school-based apprentices through you know systems and and, and qualifications mm. um and i don't have to do that i don't do it for my business i do yeah. it to help the kids yeah um, and don't get me wrong it, it becomes a channel for them to become a tennis coach mm. and i've you know created probably out of those 15 probably eight qualified coaches out of that yeah um which gives us a workforce you know whether it's with us or whether they go out somewhere else in australia to do it um so yeah, I'm, a, I'm just a big believer in trying to give back to the sport. The sport's given me tons, and mm. I want to give back as well. Is there an abundance of kids that are interested in, in coaching? I notice you've got a lot of young coaches on the roster here. Yeah, um, I think it's about... No, I don't, I don't think tennis is the easiest sport to get people into. Right. I think uh, team sports are much easier. Um, tennis is... It's a bit of a stigma. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an only, you know, it's a child-only sport. So you know, when you're on the tennis court, it's one against one. You know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's quite a tough sport in that way. So some kids struggle with that because emotionally it is quite challenging. Mm. But at the same time, I think as a tennis coach and a tennis coaching program, we're creating a team culture. Yeah. So um, I guess you know what I mean by that is straight away we've taken all of our top kids, our academy kids, and we've mm. sort of selected um, sort of eight and most of them are girls, and that's not by accident. Um, most of them are girls, we have a lot of female assisting coaches. Um, well, why do you say that? Because it's so oh, difficult. Not by accident. Oh. No, it's not, yeah, because, it, because it's so difficult to keep girls in the sport. Right. In any sport, 
okay you know to keep a girl in a sport where it's male and female it's very difficult to keep them after about 13 years old mm. and the only way you're going to keep them in the sport as a 13 you know 13 year olds is you've got to have older female role models for them yeah. Um, and like for example here at the Cannons International we've got three or four head you know lead coaches but we're all male so we balance it out with female assistants mm. um, and the and the kids love it so the boys get you know the the male balance with the older co- with, the, with the senior coaches yeah. and the girls get all the little superstar mentors that are sort of 15 16 years old yeah and tick in this and <laughs> and and snapchatting this and and all that and you know and they just work on their wavelength yeah, and I find that girls that tend, especially with the younger kids, tend to be a little more nurturing. And um, whereas, I, oh, maybe it's just me. Like, <laughs> no, 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 definitely. Yeah, girls. I mean, I, I think that's. I, I don't know. Is it a sexist thing to say that I think that females will naturally be a bit more nurturing? You know, mm, they do. Mm. You know, give birth down the line and all the rest of the yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. So I think they are probably a little more naturally they connect better with kids especially the girls and i've been you know my kids coming here and having their lessons yeah the girls you know are are great with especially the younger kids my boys four and um you know i i see his confidence growing like every day he comes here you know and it's um it's awesome to watch oh i love those sort of stories we've got a little lad william i guess we're sort of come off track a little bit here but mm. little lad called William he was uh, five years old when he came 18 mm-hmm. months ago the shyest kid I don't think he said a word to me in six months yeah. anyway really kind of long long story short the kid trains he's now six okay. and he trains four or five times a week with us wow. and is now one of the biggest personalities <laughs> in the centre um, and is arguably one of the most talented kids I've ever worked with in 25 years um, and his mum tells me that apparently he's super confident at you know at kindy now and all this sort of stuff and she yeah, puts yeah. it down to tennis so you mentioned him being one of the most talented kids that you've worked with yeah is that something that you can detect like oh, x factor in a kid yeah and, and you know what John it's you know some people think that talent is a kid that can hit the ball over non-stop mm. No, this kid, this kid's just got the work ethic. Right. So his mum is Japanese, okay, and his dad is Hungarian. So he's got this kind of Eastern European Interesting firmness yeah. and this j- kind of Japanese focus mentality going on in the background. Mm. And you know, even when he's out there and he finishes, so he, when he finishes his lessons, he's still mm. here for another hour, hour and a half every every single time with all his mates or the kids he trains with. They will stay here for another another hour, and they're on the tennis courts. The difference between him and some of the other kids is that he's still working hard on his toes. He's still bouncing around the court. He's still doing everything that we teach him he wants to do. Whereas the other kids will be a bit more, you know, they'll use their downtime to slack off a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He wants to keep working. And he's he's not serious. That's just what he does. Mm. He doesn't even realise he's doing it. Yeah. You know? (laughs) But that's what he does. And he's going to be a gun. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I I recently read um, Andre Agassi's autobiography, I guess it was called. Good book yeah yeah it's a good read and um well i think the the one thing that stands out for me and pretty much most people that have read that book that have read that book that he um doesn't really like tennis very much no he doesn't like tennis and (laughs) i don't think he had a particularly great relationship with his dad either because his dad drove him hard yeah and that's you know why i'm bringing this up you know Mm. like you've got for me there's there's the natural talent in tennis players then there's the tenacious tennis tennis player and i guess i put andre agassi into that kind con- it was m- more forced tenacity i guess that 
you know those those listeners that haven't read the book his his dad really drove him hard to do something he didn't want to do and Correct. yeah and he ended up being you know one arguably one of the best tennis players in the world yeah ten- yeah tenacious i think is probably um would be his middle name i yeah. think in a lot of ways um but uh yeah that was firm he was tough trained yeah. him hard i mean i think you know in the book you'll read that when he was in his cot they had he had a mobile above <laughs> his head with tennis balls hanging from it you yeah, know? yeah so it was it was instilled in him right from an early age. It's not something that you'd recommend in, you know. Well, why? Well, I guess. Well, look, guess. you know, here's a great example for you. So we had Rob Barty, Ash Barty's dad, up here. Yep. Um, he's been up here twice in the last nine months, and mm-hmm. I've gone to both of his speeches and his presentations, and both presentations are built around um, the fact that as parents, him and his wife have completely stood back. They haven't got involved wow. in any way, shape, or form. Their philosophy is will be the parents yeah. and will trust the coach to be the coach. Now, unfortunately, not all parents trust the coaches to be the coaches, you know, yes. in any sport, you know, mm-hmm. and that's something, you know, challenge we've, we've had, um, or any coach has. But, so you've got, you know, you've got different ways of doing it. You've got the Richard Williams, you know, with the Venus and Serena, mm-hmm. who was very much down the Agassi route, mm-hmm. where, you know, the dad will dominate how things are gonna work and the dad will, will dominate how the coach, because they often have a coach linked in with them, but mm. the dad or the, the mum will very much tell the coach what he wants him to work on. Um, and it's succeeded with the Williams and Agassi. Um, but you know what, on the other side of the coin, you've got Ash Barty, who is a, a great example of someone where the parents stood back and, and Federer is another one, mm. that you know where the parents stood back a fair bit, not completely, but a fair bit, yeah. and let the coach do what they needed to do. So yeah. there's different ways of doing it. Do you think that Agassi would have been as successful as what he was if he didn't have that? Oh. He probably wouldn't have played tennis, I That's guess. That's a tough question, isn't yeah. it? Like, uh, no, probably not. I would say not. You yeah, know, but but you know what? It's, it's, a, it's a tough answer. Um, yeah. I don't, yeah, can't answer that one. Tough one. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I talk about raw talent and, and tenacity. You know, you, you see the way Leighton Hewitt you know still plays tennis and even Alex Diemenau with his you know he just runs for everything and then yeah. you see I don't put them in the in the raw talent kind of mm-hmm. category I kind of put say a Kyrgios yeah. in the raw talent yeah good job and he, he probably you know I love watching him play tennis but I kind of um you know get a little disappointed in his lack of tenacity <laughs> I guess because yeah, I, I think he's got what it takes to be number one. Yeah, I think we all do. Um, yeah. And Nick's a bit of a, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, yeah, he's a tough one. But yeah. um, but I love Nick for yeah. what Nick brings to the sport yeah. and the fact oh, that sure. what he's done for Australian tennis is is phenomenal. Like mm. you know what, as much as much as people love to hate him, he's done a lot of good things for us. You know, oh, so, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm the first one. Um, you know, when we get around to Australian Open. Mm. I'm sitting there thinking, come on, Nick, get to the quarters or the semis because yeah. I know that that's going to help my business that's as well, right. you know. Because kids do love him. He's cool as hell. Yeah. You know, so. And he's one of the only players to beat, what, the big big four or the big three? Yeah, he's beaten all of the, yeah, he's, he's beaten all of the big three. So he yeah. beat, um, you know, he beat Fed, Nadal, Murray and Djokovic. So the big that's four. That's right, yeah, yeah, big yeah. four, yeah. And I think he's the only one that's done it. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's no mean feat. Right? Gosh, he's no. That's off the chart stuff. So he's got what it what it takes. He's got the weapons. He's got yeah. plenty of weapons. He's yeah. just uh, he's just probably hasn't got the head. Yeah, and that's you know how important is that for, for me? Like, I played tennis as a junior, and then I probably didn't play for twenty years, and um, 
and I see the way I play tennis now is kind of what I think held me back 20 years ago when I just um, I liken a lot to golf in that there's a your your ability you know your ability and when you don't well when I don't reach that ability I get frustrated and I think that comes down to the tenacity and um, not being able to get frustrated and keep your head in the game I think is a major part of of tennis yeah no, they, they say that I mean they'll often say that the difference between the players in the top 10 mm-hmm. in the world and the players from 10 to 100 mm. is nothing to do with their ball striking or their athleticism or anything yeah. like that. It's all in their heads. You That's know. what I've said to people. It's 80% head yeah, game. And sure. probably 20, in my opinion, like 20%, you know, ability. I've had something on Facebook the other day, uh, you know, I follow Federer and he put something up on Facebook, something that was talking about there's no stronger power than walking into a match with confidence. Mm. You know, it, even if he knows he's not playing well, if he's confident he can win, yeah. just having that confidence just gives you a completely different um, frame of mind uh, as, you know, how you how you address the match. Mm. You know, just knowing that you can win playing badly, mm-hmm. that's a, an absolutely unbelievable weapon. You know, yeah. I know that mentally, when I was on the tennis court, I was never really that emotionally strong it was yeah. never one of my strengths yeah. I always kind of questioned myself and, and kind of I was waiting for my game to break down mm-hmm. and that is still in my game now I play golf and I you know I might get seven or eight holes in and mm. I'm playing great golf yeah. and I'm literally talking myself into playing shit exactly like I know I'm I just know like what you're talking okay, about when's it gonna go when's it gonna go when's it when, when's I gonna have a bad hole and then yeah. I'll just watch my and I'll have one bad hole because yeah. I've convinced myself I will and then the rest of my game will go to crap yeah. and I'm like god I wish I was emotionally stronger I have said to a few of my golf mates I need a shrink I need someone mm. to, to, to actually convince me that I'm going to have 18 good holes <laughs> you know and then I probably would have 18 good holes you and, know? That, and I think that's how the game's changed a lot too is the um, introduction of sports psychology oh god yeah and um, do you see a lot of this in what we're talking about in kids and how do you counter that how do you um, help them well, I can help give, themselves. I yeah, guess. I can give you a great example straight away. So I just mentioned Rob Barty. Ash Barty's dad came up sure. and done a presentation. And there's a, a guy um, that uh, is a sports psychiatrist, uh, a sports shrink mm-hmm. um, that works with some of the big AFL teams down there. Anyway, cut a long story short, we all know that Ash Barty took a break from the sport. Yep. Um, and when she decided to come back, they engaged this sports psychiatrist. And Rob Barty said, uh, quoted, Ash would not be number one in the world without this guy. Yeah. Um, and she, he is literally on the end of a phone yeah. whenever she wants. And she talks to him three or four times a week. Mm. Um, so anytime she's just emotionally not in the right space, bang, she gets on the phone and this guy helps her out. You know, every top player in the world nowadays has a sports psychiatrist there to help him in the background. Mm. Um, and it's massive. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. I mean, I've actually got a few tennis players that I've worked with. Um, you know, that have got to a good level, like state level players mm-hmm. um, over the last sort of 12 years when I was working down in Innisfail. And um, one of them had to get involved, you know, with a sports psychologist just to try and help them through um, a few challenges on the court, whether it's temperament and, and those sort of things or confidence. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a big part of the game now. Yeah, huge. Did you notice a change with that particular player? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the yeah. confidence built. Yeah, 110%. Like they, they make a massive difference, you know, and I, and I think it's, again, it's, you know, creating a top level tennis player or top level sportsman, um, they all have these 
they build their teams around them mm. and quite often you'll have a sports psychologist involved there somewhere you know so in any sport I think even top level basketball players and all those sort of guys you know they're in a team sport they've got someone in the background to help them along as well you know because the thing is and I guess what you've also got to remember is, is social media um, is the, the first platform to knock you down if you've had a bad game for sure you know um, you know whether, and, and that it, brings us back to what we were talking about earlier with kids and the pressures you know on on kids now with social media yeah 100% I think um, yeah I'm not a bit, look, do you know what I use social media for my business mm. I'm not a big fan of it mm. um, I find it a little bit scary I see the benefits to it um, but yeah. uh, I just find it I just, yeah I think it's a tough world to live in you know yeah, it is. I, well you know with our with our children we've worked really hard my wife and I've worked really hard on emotional resilience with our kids mm-hmm. um, and you know to, to to make them understand that if a friend of theirs is giving them a hard time to remind them that actually it's a reflection of their friend not them you know right. and that sort of stuff so I think as parents I think that's something over the next kind of probably 50 years mm. the parents or, or maybe it might come into the school system a little bit um, to try and um, create, you know, that sort of tenacity and that resilience in kids. I think forward. it's something we need to remember as adults too, not, not just kids. I mean, <laughs> like, you're having yeah. a bad day and, you know, it doesn't take take much to get you down and then you just got to remember these little things that, you know, we're trying to pass on to our kids. Yeah, uh, yeah, hundred, yeah, definitely. And I think... Um, you know what, I've had my challenges in life. I mean, we've had a pretty tough, you know, 18 months. You know, we've had a bit of a family, you know, a family death, which was pretty tough for us. Um, And every day can be a little bit of a challenge when I get up and stuff like that. But I think at the same time, I try and focus on um, the good things in my life. Sure. Um, And, you know, there'll be times when when I'll feel pretty flat, but I also sort of remind myself that um, I've got a family. I've got Mm -hmm. a roof over my head. You know, we got we put food in mouths, and um, I've got you know three or four hundred members here that love being a part of what I'm all about. You know, and that yeah. is, and I have to remind myself and go, you know what, it's okay, Wayne. You got this. You know, like yeah, people enjoy being around you. You know, I deal with one parental complaint in the week. You know, a parent was complaining about one of our coaches, mm. and um, and I can in the past I probably would have sat there and and thought about that one parent yeah and actually forgot it that there's another 250 parents that absolutely love the team that's you right know? so I've, I've learned to actually focus on the 99 percent of what's going good in our lives mm-hmm. and try to butt out that one percent but it's not always easy yeah. um, but i think as 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 human beings i think we naturally tend to uh look for bad exactly you know and I think it's something that we've got to work harder on as, as humans. I think that's something we need to bring into the school system in some way down the line. You know, I mm-hmm. think um, teaching kids resilience and, and positivity. And I, I know, we, you know, you're here in Japan where they're doing yoga in the morning before mm. school and stuff like that and things that are emotionally going to help their brains and stuff. I'm like, geez, bring that into, you know, in, into Australia, bring it into the UK and, and Europe and places like that, you know, because mm. I think we need it. Our kids need it. Yeah. And um, we spoke briefly about um, what, Kyrgios has brought to Australian tennis. Um, it's always I've always found it interesting with with the money, say the US puts into um, their sports programs over there. You know, with university scholarships, mm. and to my knowledge, not a lot of that exists in Australia. Yet we're competing on a world stage. So, what, what do you think? You know, allows Australia to be competitive, given that you know we've 
kind of up against it with some yeah. of the, yeah. you know. I think um, look, I think Australia. I guess you know, talking every nation is different. Mm. So you know, if you look at Eastern Europe, yeah, those guys have got a great work work ethic because they're trying to get out of a, a system. They're you know, their countries are quite tough to live in. Yeah, so they have a natural work ethic. Um, that's the same for other places in the world, South America. You know, mm-hmm. they have a good work ethic. Australia, I think, is more about their lifestyle. I think mm-hmm. Australia is naturally renowned um, over the last 15, 50 years. You know, maybe more to be a sporting nation. Mm. Um, you know, we live in one of the best climates in the world. Yeah. You know, um, we don't get a, a whole ton of rain and stuff like that, so we get the opportunity to be outdoors. I mean, in England, for example, 90% of tennis courts in England are undercover. Wow. Whereas in Australia, geez, I reckon probably less than 1% is undercover. I was, I was gonna ask you that, like given, for the listeners who aren't aware, Cairns International Tennis Centre now has an undercover court. Um, how many regional centres in Australia would have such a facility? Uh, well, barely none. Yeah, really? like hardly any. Yeah, like yeah. none. Like it, so, this we're, we're super lucky here. Um, this is not about the rain, though. This is about the sun. Oh, this yeah. is about you know. This is when it was. It was actually built off the fact that a, a, a top level player was here and nearly passed out on the court. Um, yeah, so really? the, the local politician at the time said, "Right, we can't have this. We've got to put some sunshade in." Yeah. So and that's and, and yeah, Brisbane's got two of these, but that they also Brisbane also hosts the Brisbane International, and they got a capital city. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> and then uh, there's uh, one's just built been been built in Darwin, mm. um, and uh, there's another one down in Adelaide. But yeah, not many. The fact yeah. that I'm actually struggling to to think of any, mm-hmm. no, not many. This is pretty freaky stuff. Yeah. And you say ninety percent of the courts in the UK in the UK are undercover. undercover. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. Was that um, you? You mentioned a prominent player almost passing out due to the heat. Was that part of the um, Cairns International Tour? The Pro Tour. The Pro Tour. Yeah, sorry. we had a Pro Tour here. Go. Oh, geez, I think it was about five, six years ago. There was a Pro Tour, and uh, one of the players nearly passed out. Yeah. Do you think we'll see that return? Because I, I came to a couple of those tournaments and. It, I mean, it was great value for money in that it's free to come through the door. And um, I think that one year I came and watched a few players play here and then I went to the um, Australian Open in mm-hmm. Melbourne and I got to see the same players play there. Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's a great event. You think we'll see that come back? Yeah, like, 100%. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's only, only stopped because of COVID. It was booked in last year. Yeah. Um, it didn't go ahead because of that. Uh, and it will go ahead hopefully next year. At the moment, we can't run it here because the obviously you know that you've got players in the top hundred in the world that are involved. So you know you've 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 got to have you know you look at how tough it was to run the Australian Open this year mm. with all the players coming in there to go into a bubble and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. those events will come back. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. The great thing about the Pro Tour is the fact that you get to see these players quite often at a young age. So mm. I know a few of the players, you, you know, you're talking about Lizette Cabrera and a few of those guys. I think I saw, uh, did Bolt ever play here? Yeah, Alex Bolt. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, so he's won it. Um, yeah. Quite sure he won it. I've, I'll have to check that again, but I'm, there's an article downstairs and I thought I'd read that he'd won it, going yeah. back a few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, played, played the Australian Open. But I guess, you know, a little sidetrack on that. I ran a, a tournament called a Challenger tournament back in the UK. Mm. And um, I, was at, I worked at a massive facility there, uh, which was awesome. And, it was a $25,000 challenger anyway. The number one seed came in, never heard of this this this, this dude. And um, anyway, cut a long story short, he got knocked out first round. We were all like, far out, what's, you know, what's going on here? Yeah. And then lo and behold, 
five months later, he was in the Australian Open final. No way. You know, and I was just like, holy cow. And then we all knew, you know, that, you know. Then the, we all knew yeah, who he was. <laughs> it was the Greek dude that lost in the final, you know, the, the names <laughs> escaped me. But yeah, so these, these tournaments, these Pro Tour tournaments and stuff, you can see some players that are going to be big. You know, oh, you see world-class tennis at mm. your local facility. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the return of that. Um, I think the last time it was run, my, my boy was a little bit too young and he got a bit antsy. So I'd love to spend all day here, maybe have a beer and watch some world-class tennis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're lucky. We've got a great facility here and you've got a nice balcony here that overlooks show court. Yeah. So you can have a few beers and something nice to eat and watch some great tennis. Yeah. Um, we've got really sidetracked there. Uh, <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> but that's that's the whole point of this podcast, I guess, is digging a little deeper and you know hearing some of these stories. So let's go back to you in the UK, where yep. you um, you you had a coach who yep. kind of saw the qualities that you had being you know um, conducive to teaching younger kids. Yep. Um, yeah, so let's just pick it up there again. Yeah, good. So, um, so yeah, so a lady called Alison, um, mm-hmm. she watched me coach on Saturday mornings um, and sort of said, you know, do you want to do a bit more? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, but look, I'm going to college, um, so I can't do too much. And she said, well, look, the great thing about doing a bit of coaching is you get paid pretty well, you know, hourly. And, you know, I might get paid what might have been 15 pound an hour at the time, whereas my mates might be working down at Macca's for six or seven pounds an hour right. you know whatever you know so i was kind of in my head i was like okay well, that's all right i can um do a couple of hours less and earn the same amount of money and, and keep me afloat so i actually took my coaching qualification uh when i was 17. i think i was one of the youngest qualified coaches in the country at the time can we just talk about that real quick like mm. how does that compare to um, say how we do it here in Australia if if someone's really interested in being a tennis coach well, what is the progression for them yeah so the pathway is pretty much the same so the International Tennis Federation mm-hmm. um, is recognised in um, most countries not all countries so the International Tennis Federation will um, have a so uh, in, in Australia for example we have Tennis Australia mm-hmm. in the UK we have the Lawn Tennis Association the LTA okay. um, and the US has got their own version now in all of those countries the coaching pathway is pretty much the same so you've got the same stages so for example in Australia uh, we have a one day um, hot shot um, uh, course where basically you might put your 13 and 14 year old little assistant coaches on and they'll just learn about what Hot Shots is about. Then there's a three-day course um, called the uh, Community Coaching Course. Again, the UK would have something similar, same as the US. And uh, that's recognized by the ITF, the International Tennis Federation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'd be the next step for a few of these young coaches. So probably 50% of my assistant coaches of all community coach qualified. Uh, we had a course earlier in the year and I put half of them on it. And then if you want to become a qualified coach, which is where you can actually be a coach and you can be out on court and you can actually run your own lessons and all that sort of stuff, you have to do what's called the junior development course. Mm. So that's what it's called in, in, in here over the Australia. In England, I think it's called, um, oh, I think it's, yeah, I actually can't remember now. It's, it's sure. I think, a development coach or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's your entry level coach if you want to run your own program in Australia mm. and it's a 16 day course it's spread over six months um, usually it's kind of um, four blocks of four days so one of my coaches at the moment our win is just completing that at the moment 
Um, and the idea is that you do four days where the tutors will teach you how to be a coach and then you've got a month to practice those skills, do a video assessment, and then you do the next block of four days and then you do the same thing. And then by the end of the 16 days, you've gone through all the different levels of coaching and you are super um, sort of pepped up on, you know, what needs to be done to be, to be a good coach. And it's a great course. Mm. Tennis Australia have done it really, really well. Yeah. I don't know if necessarily they can take all the credit. I think the UK and the LTA, I think, were the hotshot specialists going back, you know, um, mm. sort of 20 years ago. Australia only brought it out maybe 13 years ago. But it's a great course run by incredibly brilliant people in Australia. Um, and it's an easy pathway. Like, I've, like I said to you earlier on, like I've put quite a few of my um, school-based apprentices through the course. And not necessarily because they want to be career coaches, but because it's an op opportunity for why they're at uni, you know, and that sort of stuff. Mm. Much the same as me. I mean, I was never meant to be a tennis coach. That yeah. was never on the agenda. Um, I'd done it to, to help fund university. And, you know, for when me- When you were supposed to be an accountant, right? Yeah, when I was right. meant to be an accountant, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was, you know, I thought I'd do a bit of coaching on the side too, because it was good money. Yeah. Um, and I enjoyed it, loved it. Mm. And um, so, yeah, much the same as um, what we do here to, to, to get a coach qualified. So. I've actually, uh, quite a few of my guys, have, you know, the qualified coaches, have actually gone down to uni, whether it's in Brisbane, I've got a girl in Townsville, I've got a lad over in the US actually doing college tennis, and they, the coaching qualifications help them to, you know, just to fund what they're trying to do. Mm. And then I always say to them, I said, you know what guys, like, you know, the girl in, in, in Townsville, for example, Sophie, she said to her, look, hun, you know, this gives you an outlet in life. You know, no matter what happens, I said, you know, if you're not enjoying being a physio, you're a qualified coach. No one can take that away from you. Mm. So you can go to a local tennis club and you can, you know, I can hear the phone in the background, is that? Yeah. I don't think it's me. <laughs> I don't think it's me either. Oh, must be down there. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's just an outlet. It's an opportunity, you know, to, mm. to give them something. It's a bit like being a musician, John. You know, you'd know this, you know, being a musician. Like, I play the piano. Um, and Play it well? I got to grade five, okay. you know, so I don't know why, yeah. yeah. Um, but my dad always said to me, if you can play the piano, you'll never be poor. He said, because <laughs> even if you lose your job or whatever, you can go down to the local pub and you can busk, yeah. you know, or you can play a gig or whatever, you know, you can play away and you'll earn a bit of money. You'll earn enough money to feed, you know, feed yourself, you know, you'll always be alive. having the tools. Yeah, that's it, that's, that's it. That's a tool so, bag, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. So <laughs> I think it's exactly the same for tennis coaches. Like, yeah. whether it wants to be a, a, a career path for you or not, it's a skill and it's a way to earn money. Do you get many people that are adamant that's that's the pathway they want to take. I want to be a tennis coach. No, 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 not. No. And it, do you know what? But in saying that, John, Tennis Australia um, are really trying hard at the moment to educate the workforce that a tennis coach is actually a career. Mm. A lot of people in the UK, tennis coaches are because it's actually a really great career. Like people look at a tennis coach and go, "Yep, yeah, you know, that's the guy." The, they put you on a pedestal a little wow. bit, you know. In Australia, I think people think it it can be a little bit of a, I think it's probably had a stigma of being a bit of a slack job, you know? Mm. Like, oh, you're a tennis coach, oh, mate, you're just chilling, you know, you're just loving <laughs> you're just life, chilling. you know? Yeah. But, but, but no, it, but we are definitely re-educating. Um, mm -hmm. For example, Alwyn, my coach here, is probably the most career-driven young coach I've ever come across. The guy's just turned 18, and he's one of the best young coaches I've ever worked with, you know? And he and hits he, a mean ball, too. He hits a great ball, and he's already <laughs> got it in his head that he wants to be a career coach. He's already got it all planned out, oh, you wow. know? So my, I guess that's my next question. I mean, you mentioned the pathway to, to fund them through university and mm -hmm. 
he's interested in being a coach. Um, do many players, would they take up coaching on their way, say they've aspirations to be a professional tennis player and they'll say, you know, take up coaching to spend more time on the court? Uh, this is an interesting one because it's something that's just come up recently for me. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the answer to that is no. Um, mm. Generally, a, te a tennis player, well, a, a player that's on the tour, they are a million ma miles away from wanting to be a tennis coach. Mm. Quite often, they will fall into coaching yeah. um, because they haven't quite made it on the tour, for example. It's quite a natural progression for tennis players to, to do that. Um, not many tennis coaches will necessarily go and jump into another field like mm. they go back to uni and, and do a degree in business and start up their own yeah. coffee shop or whatever right um you know most of them will fall into coaching because it's easy for them because they're unbelievably bloody brilliant players that's right um and if they can just relate a little bit to kids bang they're earning money yeah you know so no i mean i've got a coach here with us at the moment um and i don't think he'd mind me saying this he um we sponsored him um, and thought that he wanted to be a career coach, but he still loved playing tournaments and stuff like that. Mm. He's actually just come to us just recently and said, actually, um, coaching is not what I want to do just yet. He said, I wanted to be a career coach long-term, but I've still got five more years of playing left in me. Mm -hmm. So he's actually looking at going back out on the tour and actually playing again for another five years because if he's finding doing 30 hours coaching and trying to fit in tournaments and, and training and stuff like that, too much of a challenge. Mm. So um, no, generally, player is a player and a yeah. coach is a coach and it's quite divided um, I think coaches uh, tennis coaches uh, will often be either a career coach mm -hmm. or it'll be an opportunity for them to help fund what they're trying to do in another part of their life yeah. whether it's at uni or whether they work in a coffee shop or school teachers quite often you'll get school teachers that have a love to tennis and they want to do a couple of hours after school mm -hmm. you know and do a bit of coaching and stuff like that so it's it's a flexible sport is there much avenue for being coach for top players? I mean, how do you get into that line of work? Like, because every every player's got a coach, right? Yeah, for sure. So yeah. you know, how is there any tricks? <laughs> I mean, how would you um, throw your hat in the ring to say be Federer's coach, for example? Or, okay. You know? um, so you've got two ways of going about this, I would say, uh, in my opinion. Um, you've got all the coaches out there. That, mm. There's a lot of coaches where they want to be a high performance coach. Mm. They really want to work with the top level players and all that sort of stuff. That is, they don't like hot shots. Hot shots is your, your grassroots stuff, you know, your entry yeah. level. Um, that's personally what I love, you know, and I, and I, and I know a good job, I do a good job with. But there's a lot of coaches want to be high performance coaches. So, but uh, it's not an easy field. Um, it's not easy to get into. No, or not at all. Is no. there a course like above what yeah, you get yep, as a coach? Yeah. So, right. um, you know, you've got the junior development course, which is what Aaron's doing. Mm -hmm. Then you've got what's called the club pro, which is what I'm qualified as. Okay. And then the next one on from that is what's called a high performance coach. Right. Now, to be a high performance qualified coach, you've got to have a level of players. Um, you can't just go and become a high performance coach. So you've got to have done the work and you've got to have players. They won't accept you on the course. They only take, in Australia, I think they take 12 to 16 a year. Um, so that's not many in the whole of Australia that become no. high performance coaches. Um, so for example, um, when I was back in Innisfail, I had three state level players. I could have done the high performance um, qualification. I would have been accepted, mm. um, but it was not a pathway I wanted to go. You right. know, because the thing is, it's a it's a tough lifestyle. You got to you got to travel with these guys. Mm. You know, it's you can't just sit back and, and coach them and send them off to tournaments. Yeah. You've got to be with them. You, you know, with them, yeah. so it is a completely different 
way of coaching compared to running what I do here at the tennis center here, mm. you know? So um, it's quite tough. So in saying that, um, you sort of asked if it's a field you can you can get into. Yeah, you can get into it, you, but you've got to do the work. You've got mm. to get some good players. You've got you've to build to them develop up. People, you've got to yeah. develop players. You've got to prove that you can do that. Yeah. Um, and then um, get them to a level where you're allowed to go onto that course. And then mm. once you've got that qualification, it opens up more avenues to work with players um, that, that have maybe been coached by other people. So for example, I might coach a kid up to uh, state level standards. And because I don't want to be a high performance coach and travel with players, I would then push them to a high performance coach. I'd move them on, you know? Mm, mm. Um, right. But uh, there's the other side of it. Ash Barty's coach, for example. Ash Barty turned up at this tennis club back in, down in Brizzy at four years old and this coach was adamant that he doesn't take kids before six years old mm. and um, Rob Barty had convinced the coach just to watch her just she just wants to play tennis mate you know just you know and the guy was like okay whatever you know come on down <laughs> she went on down didn't miss a bloody ball mm. um, at sort of like four years old freak of nature you know she is a proper talented kid mm. and the coach was like okay yeah she can jump in the program anyway this coach um, has taken her through to um, Grand Slam champion he then had to move her on that's a long story in itself yeah. but he was never meant to be a high performance coach you know and I asked Rob that question I said Rob was he ever did he have any um, qualifications and to be a high performance coach no not at all mm. she you know Ash just fell into his lap yeah. and he embraced it and ran with it and all of a sudden got himself a, a junior Grand Slam champion mm. you know but then he didn't want to be doing the traveling necessarily and stuff like that. And I think he knew that he had taken her as far as he could. Yeah. And I think as a coach, that's super important to know that, you yeah. know, where your limitations are. Um, and he ended up moving her on to, I think maybe Jason Stoltenberg or someone like that. Mm. Um, and yeah, as we know now, she's now the number one in the world. Incredible. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it was a, a great insight when Rob came here to understand how it all worked. And typically, I guess your your top level coaches were once on the pro tour themselves, weren't they? Yeah, yeah that, that's another avenue. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, so when you are, it's much easier to be on the high performance course or, or do the high performance qualification if you've been a player yourself. Mm. Um, because the thing is, um, when you finish playing, you will naturally gravitate towards. You know, if you want to do some coaching, you'll naturally gravitate towards good players. Sure. So you'll be hitting with these good players and you will be a better player than these juniors because you've just come off the tour. Yeah. So you've all of a sudden you've got a database of kids that mm. you work with and you hit with. So bang, you're straight onto the high performance qualification. You don't have to actually have got them from grassroots through to that level. As mm. long as you've got players under your name, yeah. you can then do that high performance course. So yeah, yeah. Cool. So we've digressed again. So yep. we're, you're still in the UK. We haven't got you to Australia yet. That's good. <laughs> I can see this interview is going to go that way, isn't it? It's going to keep bouncing. We'll keep bouncing it's back. It's all right, though. I mean, That's all right. Yeah, so, um, so i done college. Um, i done my three qualifications there. I've done okay. Not, not particularly great. I think it was an opportunity for me to slack off a little bit. Then uh, de decided to do a degree in leisure business management. Um, don't really know why I wanted to do that degree. I think it was, the name sounded great. Mm, you know, mm. I thought it was going to be quite a chilled out course. Um, <laughs> at the time I was coaching part-time at yeah. a local club. Again, no intentions of being a full-time coach. Mm -hmm. um, and worked my way through my degree. And then I was coaching more and more um, at the local club. Kind of nearly fell out of university. I think halfway through, um, I was with my girlfriend, my 
wife now, you know, mm. childhood, childhood sweetheart, Steph. She's absolute beauty. She, um, I sort of said to her, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do uni. Anyway, mum and dad were like, no, come on, Wayne, you got this. You this can do is it. still the accounting course, though. Yeah, no, yeah. no, this was leisure business management. Oh, leisure yeah, business no, accountancy's gone out the window now. I'm done with that. Yeah, yeah, I was done with that. So I thought I'd do a nice broad degree. <laughs> okay. Because yeah. I, I think, again, going back to what my dad, my dad had convinced me I had to do a degree. Mm. And I, I don't even, you know, you look at kids nowadays and they'll often do a trade. You know, whatever. I think there's different avenues for kids now, yeah. which wasn't quite there when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to go to university to be, to be successful when That's I was a right. kid. Yeah. Um, so I went to university, done this degree. Whilst I was at uni, I then done my club coach qualification, which is um, the second from the top. Um, again, not necessarily to be career minded. It was more a case of I was just enjoying coaching. Wasn't quite sure where I was going with it and, and whatnot. I was still doing my degree. And then as I finished my degree, luck behold, um, a massive tennis center, one of the biggest tennis centers um, in, in the country, in, in the UK, opened up oh, just down the road from where I was. Mm. And Alison, who I was talking about earlier on, who got me into coaching, she became the head coach there. And straight away approached me and said, Wayne, you just finished uni, do you wanna, do you want a full-time job? Um, and I was like, yeah, okay, why not? I finished uni, I didn't want a pencil push. Um, certainly wasn't ready for pencil pushing. Mm. I thought, you know what, I'll have a bit of fun. I can go straight into a full-time coach, earn some okay money. Um, and that was kind of where the coaching journey really, really started. That's when I kind of went, okay, What I about like as a player? I mean, did you ever no. feel that coaching got in the way of playing or? No, not really. Um, no, I was, I mean, like I said to you, I started late. So mm. I think unfortunately, sadly for me, I don't think playing was ever gonna be something I could really, really do. I got to a good level player, mm. um, but you know, so for example, I would have been a regional player from an Australian point of view, I'd have been a regional player. I never would have been state level player. Okay. Um, uh, and just because I started too late, I didn't have the same opportunities. I come from a working class background. My parents could never afford private lessons. Mm -hmm. Probably most state level players have private lessons. Yeah. Um, I know the three kids that I got to state level, they were all having private lessons with me. How many lessons a week? So well, you don't have to. I'm a big believer in lots of squads. So, you know, if you, as long as you're training four or five times a week, um, you know, one private lesson a week would be enough. Ash Party, she had one private lesson a week right through her juniors, but uh, but she done a hell of a lot of squad coaching and a lot of fixtures, a lot of match play against yeah. adults. And that's right. how she got to where she is. And I th that's like another great insight. You know, there's a lot of coaches out there that feel that to get to the top level, you've got to have four or five privates a week. Mm. That's crap. Mm. You know, that's an absolute load of garbage. You know, you the kids just need to be hitting balls. Mm. You know, I think a coach, Ash's coach, just made sure that she had a private once a week to just tune up her technique mm -hmm. and a few things like that. But apart from that, she just needed to go out there and hit balls, you know? Mm. So so you're full-time coaching now? Full-time coaching now uh, at this, uh, it's called the Southampton David Lloyd. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess my degree kind of kicked in. I'd done what, three or four years there um, and I was doing good. I had a great clientele. People really enjoyed being around me, which was great. I love being around them. I'm a people person. Mm -hmm. um, and then I kind of sat there and I thought, geez, well, I've got to do something. I can't just be, you know, I, can, I could be just coaching. I, I, well, I had to decide whether I was going to try and go down the high performance route or I was going to try and do something myself, you know, and maybe mm -hmm. have my own programs in years to come. Mm. So I then um, applied for a job to be a head coach. Um, went for uh, two interviews at two different clubs. I was offered both roles, uh, which was great, up against uh, you know much older, more experienced people, but I think my enthusiasm came through a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's where my degree helped me as well. 
right. I had a degree in business management or leisure business management. Mm -hmm. Well, as a head coach, you've got to do a lot of admin as well. So I took the one in Woking, which is um, just outside London and commuted there sort of, uh, you know, four times, four times a week, which was a bit, it was hard work at the time for, because I had a young family as well mm. by that time. Mm. And um, became the head coach there. I'd done, what, two or three years there. Then moved back to the original club I had because my boss had moved there as the general manager. She pulled me across. Um, had a bit of a, a, a good two or three years there where I actually won, um, which was pretty cool. I won the, so David Lloyd's have got 80 clubs across Europe mm -hmm. and I won the head coach of the year across those clubs. So that was a pretty cool achievement at the time. It was a big award ceremony and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then what, two years later, a guy that used to work for me, a lad called James Pozo, um, who, um, great guy. He had uh, went on a ski trip, met an Australian girl <laughs> and fell in love. Yeah. Um, in Switzerland, I think it was. And he then moved to Australia. And him and I were really, really good friends. And I said to him, I said, mate, when you get out there, I said, if you ever want me to come across, let me know. Mm. I said, I'll speak to Steph. And if it's something we can do, we'll do. He was a tennis coach. Tennis as well. coach, yeah. Okay. And, and a player. He was a good player as well. Yeah. But that's, well, we can diverse onto that one, I'm sure, <laughs> but we won't. Um, anyway, so he came across to Australia, became a resident because he married this, uh, this lovely lady called Kim. Um, and. They then applied for a job, a coaching gig up in Innisfail, which is just south of Cairns here. Mm -hmm. And he um, then, what, a bit of a chance moment. I completely lost contact with him for two years. And I remember I walked into my tennis club back in the UK and I had a, a PA at the time as a part of my role being the head coach there. I had a girl that done my admin, uh, Abby, she was lovely. And uh, she was typing away, I said, Abby, what are you up to? And she said, oh, I'm just uh, got an email from James. James Pozo, who's over mm. in Australia. And I went, oh, mate. I said, that's great. I said, oh, I haven't heard from him for a couple of years. I said, say hello for me, you know? <laughs> that was it, no more than that. Yeah. She said, hello. Anyway, I think 24 hours later, she got another email to say, get Wayne to contact me. Here's my email. Mm. So anyway, I contacted him and he's like, mate, you ready to come? And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, mate. So I've got this other tennis club called Tully. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tully Tennis Club. And uh, they haven't got a coach. And do you want to come over? I'll sponsor you. And at the time... I was being kind of pushed through the management system at this big corporate organization, David Lloyd, mm. and they were sort of, you know, pinpointing me to be a general manager at my own center. But the more they kept pushing me up the management system, the less I was on court coaching, exactly. which I've quickly learned was what I've really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and I went, you know what, let's do it. I'm out of this. Like, mm. I need to get out of this gig. You know, I, I wasn't particularly getting on with the general manager at the time because yeah. He was trying to pull me off the tennis court and do me, get me doing more admin and I wasn't happy with it. Um, so I spoke to Steph, I said, hun, I said, James is emailed, he wants to sponsor us, what do you want to do? And she's like, yeah, done, let's get out. Really? And that was it, quick as that, I swear to God. Like, And you didn't know any other people out here? No, didn't know no anyone, family. didn't know anything. No. Um, I, my theory was that- Do you know what Tully was like? Nope, <laughs> I had no idea. Um, and I didn't even know what Mission Beach was, you right. know? And James said to me, he said, mate, you've got to come out and come and check it out first. And I said, mate, I haven't got the money. I said, I'll tell you what, I said, we'll just come out, we'll do two years. If we don't like it, I said, it's two years of my life, you know, it's not a mm -hmm. big drama um, and we'll give it a shot anyway went through the process. I came out on my own because um, Steph had to sell the house back in the UK. Mm. Uh, my son and daughter, she was only one. My son was probably seven or eight at the time. 
They stayed back with Steph. I came out, I'd done five months. It was the toughest five months of my life, you know, what, not being around. What made it tough? Oh, just because being it wasn't, away? Yeah, just yeah, being yeah. away from my family. I've never been away, with my fam- been away from my family like that. You know, mm-hmm. I was in tears on the phone quite a lot and I was like, geez, this is really tough. Mm. We were having trouble selling the house because the American market had crashed just at that time. Oh yeah. The global market had gone to crap and it was a bit of a stressful time. So it was 2008. Yeah, 2008. Yep, like correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah, 2000. And yeah, so we'd lost money on our house. Um, mm. We'd pretty much come to Australia with literally just the, the clothes on our back. We yeah. had nothing, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, landed in Mission Beach. So when I came out in January 2008, I think January the 9th, 2008, mm. um, James picked me up from Cairns Airport, drove me down to Mission Beach done what he probably should have which was take me straight to the beach <laughs> got me a cold beer and i looked out over dunk islands and these places and got on the phone to my wife and i was like shit babe we've done it this is great like this is the lifestyle we're gonna wow. love this i said honestly hun, we've landed in paradise so i realized really quickly that actually this was going to work for me um and then eventually she came out my family came out in may 2008 I was, we were, um, one of the things that I said to him was that we've got to go into partnership. I said, I'm not coming out to Australia to to, to work for someone for, mm, for the mm. next, you know, 10 years. I said, and he was like, nope, that's all good. So I'd done a year for him. Um, he earned good money off the back of me. That was my buy-in as such. Yep. Then we went into partnership. Um, and then Yazzie hit us, or in 2011, I think it was. Mm. And James kind of was just like done with the region because the cyclones were a bit of a pain. I think it freaked him out a little bit. Mm. He moved down to New South Wales with his wife and two girls. And we just inherited the business. So we had Innisfail, Tully and Mission Beach Tennis Club. Wow. I was building my own program. James had moved on. Um, I thank James and Kim for that opportunity. At the same time, once he left, it gave me the opportunity to do the things the way I, the way I wanted to do it, mm-hmm. uh, which I couldn't really do when we were in partnership. That was quite tough. That's another thing, I would never do a partnership again. Um, not because we didn't get on, but just because I'm probably a bit too headstrong and I probably know what I right. want. And it's good that you know that about yourself too. Yeah, I, I would probably do a partnership in a, on a smaller way. So with Alwyn, for example, he's just got this great head on his shoulders. Mm. And I've already said to him, I said, mate, if you, you're still with us when you're in your mid twenties, mm-hmm. I said, you know, we'll go into partnership in some way. It might be another tennis club comes up mm. and you and I will go into partnership on that tennis club, you know, whatever. Um, I would still keep this place, that's the plan. Yeah, yeah. But it, it just gives him a good mentor to actually run his own program as such, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was diversing a little bit again. Um, <laughs> so I, I then ran my own program on the Cassowary Coast from 2011 through to 2018, 2019. Um, employed coaches to work for me at the same time um, had three Queensland players as I said earlier mm. had massive success loved it great lifestyle and all that sort of stuff and got to what three years ago and then decided I needed a new challenge Cairns project came up and here I am and that's kind of how my coaching yeah. thing happened I was never meant to be a career coach it was just something I fell into um, and um just kind of took opportunities as they came up. Mm. There was that sliding doors moment when yeah. my assistant was emailing James at the time. Yeah. He could have ended up going a different channel. So a bit of luck involved then? Massive luck, yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't think he would have contacted me necessarily. I don't know, he might have, he may not. You know, yeah. I'm not sure, but we are where we are, you know, and I love it here. It's two points 
the more I do these things, um, these podcasts, the more I realize there's, there's two schools of thought. There's the people that know exactly what they want to do. Yep. And then there's people like you and I that tend to just fall into what we do. And, um, yeah, I think it just depends on the type of person, I guess. Yeah. And do you know what? I think um, if there's one thing I've learned from my life is, you know, I say to my daughter now, um, hun, you know, she, she knows what she wants to be. You know, she wants to be a, an obstetrician. Mm. And I'm like, hun, you don't have to make decisions right now. I'm like, you know, she's a great little tennis coach. She assists, she's yeah, in our program. Seen, yeah, she's, I've seen her out there. Yeah. She's awesome, you know? And I'm like, hun, just, just let things, just enjoy your life, you know? And I think that everyone in life will naturally fall into a pathway one way or another. I mm. think if you've got enthusiasm and energy and a, and a, and a work ethic, you will be successful, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, that's kind of where, that's kind of how I've fallen into what I do. Mm. And, and the other thing that you said just before that I find interesting and something that comes up a lot is, um, I, I guess it's a, a version of the Peter Principle where people get promoted to a point of incompetence. And society kind of dictates that people should, you know, strive to better themselves and move up, say, a corporate ladder or or whatever ladder exists in their, you know, the hierarchy of that company. Yeah. But like you said before, you, you found yourself in a position where you were spending less time on the court and actually less time doing the stuff that you actually enjoy. And and for what? Maybe a pay rise or, or prestige? Or? Uh, I think, yeah, and, and probably uh, job security money-wise, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. But you know what? I mean, John, I mean, what is it? Is it something like a third of our life we spend working? Mm. Something mm. like that? The other third sleep it. Yeah. And the other third we're meant to be doing leisure, you know? Right. If there's one bit of advice I will give, you know, that I would give to anyone that I work with, do a bloody job you enjoy. Mm. You know, life is not about earning a fortune. Mm-hmm. Life, you live in the most beautiful country in the world. You know, yeah. this is an amazing opportunity to anyone that lives in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think COVID's definitely proven that, you know, we're probably the luckiest country in the world <laughs> right now. Uh, but it is a great place to live. It's a great lifestyle. Do what you enjoy, you know, and, and realize, you know, I, I'll often joke with my wife and say, you know, sometimes these these monks in these, you know, out there, they, they don't have technology. They don't have, yeah. you know, but they also have no stress. They also do something that they enjoy and stuff like that. And I think there's a lot to be said for- They also don't have tennis courts. No, they don't have tennis courts, but you know, minimalism is a beautiful thing, right, you know, right. and I'm, I'm following the whole minimalistic approach at the moment, you know, mm-hmm. not something that I'm very good at, you right. know, practicing, but I do see qualities in it. But getting back to what I'm saying, just enjoy what you're doing. Mm. You know, I think that's so important. It helps you sleep at night. Um, you know, yeah, I think, I mean, don't get me wrong personally, um, I'm working very, very hard. So I don't have a great work-life balance at the moment. Because um, you're spending too much time at work? Yeah, I think doing a project as big as the Kansas International Tennis Centre, mm-hmm. um, bearing in mind where it was and where we've got it to. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, and my wife always says this, she always says, Wayne, you know what? Your biggest problem is whenever you do something, you do it 110%. Yeah. You know, there's nothing, you know, you're a perfectionist, you know, and I am a little bit, you know, picking up Hedgehill Tennis Club and Freshwater Tennis Club as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I've made that whole thing a little bit bigger, you know. Um, and the stress is probably a little bit higher. And I think at some point, I'm, I've kind of got this mentality of one, I do actually enjoy my job. I love coaching yeah. and stuff like that. But the, more, the bigger the responsibilities I take on, the more admin I'm doing. And actually that's kind of pulling me away from what I really enjoy doing. Yeah. Like in my day, I will do four or five hours admin every morning um, and probably four hours coaching in the evenings. Mm. So I'm 50-50 on, on those two things. At some point, I've got to try and find that 
balance. And I've actually just taken on a girl who helps me with admin now. With admin. To try and just ease that kind of burden a little bit. Yeah, it cost me, you know, she cost me, what, 20, 25 grand a year, whatever she cost yeah. me. But it's a well, price, small price to pay for a little yeah, bit more well, balance. I mean, maintaining your sanity is probably um that's <laughs> oh, an important part of life yeah <laughs> exactly. absolutely mm. more important yeah so what would you consider that um advice to your 20 year old self then or uh, have you got another little nugget of um i think i think uh, well like what we just said about you know finding something you love i think is super important mm. for me personally um my wife is amazing like you know finding a really good lady or partner sorry um that shares similar um thought processes i mean we got together at 17 and 15 oh wow and we've been together ever since you know so i was lucky to find my soulmate right from the start mm. um but you know find someone to share someone good that you, you know you get on with and my mum always used to say to me wayne it's not how often you argue it's how you argue mm. you know like we used to bicker a lot you know and stuff like that but we but we used to make up really quickly and easily you know so with Steph she's been good we were good balance we're complete yin and yang like complete opposite she's an right. introvert I'm an extrovert I love to socialise she loves to just be at home you know and we've had our arguments over that in the, over in the past but at the same time we do have great call you know we have great common um, interests mm. um, we both love food we both love our family we both love going on holidays we both have a good work ethic she's got her own business too and I've got my own business we don't clash with those businesses she mm. does hers I do mine you she don't get involved no god no she used to do our, she used to do our finances but after a few too many rows we stopped that one <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bookkeeper now that does that um, so one yeah find a great partner in life I think is important um, not early necessarily but at mm -hmm. some point you know so that's what I'll, I'll be telling my 20 year old self um, mind you at 20 years old I was with her so that's an easy answer <laughs> easy for me to say find a job you really really enjoy and and remember that work is not everything yeah. you know that's so important M work and money is not everything and I'm a big believer now and you know stuff that I've experienced over the last 18 months like I said earlier with the you know with the death of my Tragedy, son yeah. it was a horrible thing to, to go through is that I don't want to have any regrets when I'm laying on my deathbed in years to come mm. you know that will be the worst thing in the world I don't want to get to however old I get to and be laying there with a few hours left to live knowing I might have a few hours left to live and go shit I wish I hadn't done this or I wish mm. I hadn't done that or I wish I didn't stress about money and blah, blah, blah. And I still do stress about those things a little bit, but mm -hmm. I'm very quickly changing. Um, and I'm hoping in five years time that my outlook on life will be a lot different to where it is right now. Not that it's bad right now. I just want to be, I'm striving to be even happier. You know, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. Finding that happiness, that's um, a lot of people dream about. Would you, um, would you consider this your dream job or is there, you know, other than you know the accounting job that you were really keen on earlier <laughs> is there something else you'd rather do no this is nah, easy honestly i absolutely genuinely love what i do i think uh look you know what if if i could have been a if i could have been in a rock band right or something like that you know <laughs> be a piano player but you know what i wouldn't i probably would have been like bloody Mick Jagger or something you know I probably would have ended up killing myself when I mixed it around you know but yeah I probably would have probably gone off the off the rails I was definitely a kid that could have easily gone off the rails life but, to excess yeah absolutely yeah. And, and you know I guess 
another message for kids out there. Like for me, sport has kept me on the channel. Mm -hmm. It's kept me on the rails, no doubt about it. I was a rat bag kid. Yeah. I was a good kid. I had good morals and stuff like that, but I was a rat bag as well, you mm. know? So sport definitely kept me on the straight. Um, and I think that that is something that, you know, the sport does give us that outlet in life. Yeah, just to paint a picture of that, I mean, with current culture and over-diagnosing kids with, with ADHD and, you know, over-medicating, which I guess is a problem, not so much in Australia, but, you know, I've spent a bit of time in the US working with kids like that. Um, would you have, you know, if those diagnoses existed when, when you were younger, you yeah. think you would have been slapped with one of those? <laughs> Do you know what? Well, I don't know what the what the stats are. Like, I think kids are labelled so easily nowadays. Exactly. You know. Yeah. So yeah, maybe I maybe I would have. <laughs> I don't know. But um, but I think um, sport. I'm a massive sports fan. Sport is the amount of kids I've worked with where mm. sport has kept them on the straight and narrow. It's huge. It has for me. I've got a beautiful family that you know. I won't say the names, but they were all <laughs> massively overweight. You know, I had mm. these, uh, they came to me at eight and nine or eight and 10 or something like that. Um, super huge boys. Mm. Um, and kind of long story short, one of them is now playing college tennis in the US. Wow. The other one is now a tennis coach on the Gold Coast. Both have got six packs. Yeah. yeah. Both are fit as hell. Yeah. Both look great. And I just sit and I think, and they're both unbelievably good tennis players. Mm -hmm. And I think, wow. And that, that's, it's not just, uh, it's not just a, a big up for tennis or a big up for me it's a big up for sport mm. that's what sport does you know they were depressed i think they were yeah. probably pretty flat in life they were probably picked on because of their weight and stuff yeah, like that yeah. bang how the tides have turned and tennis you know? kind of turn it around for them tennis hard work you know good relationship with a mentor i guess with me mm. um friendships this desire to want to be fit and healthy and, and all that sort of stuff with um um, with coaching kids, I mean, does a lot of um, nutrition talk and um, strength and conditioning and stuff like that come into coaching or is it basically just just the tennis aspect? Only once you start going down a slightly more, well, for us personally, only when you start going down a more performance pathway. So at hot shot level, mm. um, which is like your core, you know, your grassroots stuff. No, we don't talk about nutrition yeah, and all okay. that sort of stuff. But we do have an academy here, which is our top end kids. Mm -hmm. We call it the Cairns Tennis Academy. And that's where all our top kids go. And we've had a nutritionist come in twice mm. and talk to kids about, you know, what they should be eating and what they shouldn't be eating and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. We will regularly talk to them about eating before they train and what they should be eating before they train. Mm -hmm. um, are, are we really intense on it? No, not massively. Mm. Um, do you think there's an avenue for that? Or yeah, do you think definitely. It's some would be beneficial? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but I think at the same time is, you know, bad foods are so accessible, you know? Mm. And I think it's it's not easy to program all your kids to, 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 to take that on board. Yeah. You know, I think I think if I'm, I think it's a big parental world as well. You've mm. got to be careful of like, so for example, we can sit there and we can preach what kids should be eating and stuff like that. But if the parents are going to pick up, a you know, a fast food on the way home, mm. you know, because yeah. that's what they want. Yeah, exactly. Then unfortunately the kids don't have a choice, you know, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So it can be, you've got to have the right, support and backup from the parents as well when it comes mm. to food and nutrition so talking about um coaching kids is there a, a good age to start or a better age than others or is it, does it all depend on the kid no i think you know we do we have kids coming in at 14 15 mm -hmm. but i mean probably 90 percent 
of our kids that come into our program come in between the ages of between five and seven. Yeah, It's a great age. I mean, but the thing is like most sports now are modifying their approach. Mm -hmm. So tennis, for example, now you bring them in at five to seven and you're on a court that is um, a quarter the size of a full-size tennis court mm. because they're little, you know, the kids are little. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and kids nowadays don't have the same attention spans that we might have had when we were kids, John. Like, mm. you know, if we missed a ball 10 times in a row as a kid, we just keep going. If a kid misses a, a ball 10 balls in a row here, they're going to leave tennis. Simple mm. as that, you know, because they just don't have that just same resilience yeah. that they used to have, yeah. you know. So we've created a sport now which is much easier to succeed. You know, your daughter's involved, you know, she... Mm she can hit balls she probably won't be far away from rallying if she's not rallying already mm. you know because the balls are bigger they're squidgier mm. um, the rackets are smaller and more manageable and more pliable to work with yeah. and all of a sudden you know I've got five and six year olds now that are rallying on a tennis court on a small tennis court but they're mm -hmm. rallying and they feel like like the tennis players they see on TV because yeah. they're doing it you yeah. know yeah so on all the sports are doing it cricket's doing the same thing um you know most of them are modifying what they're doing to to, to get them involved mm. so tennis is smart and sharp and a leader in that way i think in the, in, in world sport um to modernize to to make sure it's easier for kids to to, to mm. achieve um what i've noticed even in my tennis like like i said earlier i i had a lot of coaching when i was younger and then i stopped playing for 20 years and um what I've noticed is that the body mechanics and the muscle memory is always with you. Like if you get good coaching, good quality coaching at, at a young age, like for me to pick up a tennis racket 20 years later, I, I find I can still hit a ball well enough to have a rally with someone. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, I think as well on that path, you know, on that, that train of thought is, you know, sometimes I think as, as parents, we kind of wonder why we kids play tennis mm. or play other sports. We always say to our, our our parents, it doesn't matter if they don't become the next Australian Open champion. We're mm. giving them a skill for life. That's right. So no matter what happens, if they go through uni and don't play tennis, you know, and they potentially go and move to another city, Sydney, wherever, or mm. wherever in the, in the country, there's always a local tennis club. Yeah. Always. And they will naturally walk into that tennis club and they will make friends because they can play the sport, mm. you know? And I think that is what we've got to remember about sport is it gives you social avenues, it gives you friendships. Um, it, it, gives you, it gives you a release, you mm. know? So yeah, I think uh, the body is a smart, you know, it's a smart system. Um, you know, any kid that I train now, um, you know, we technically get things involved and we make sure that, they've, that they're sound. Mm -hmm. And then if they stop for five years, I've, I've known plenty of kids stop for a few years and then come back. And within three months to six months, they're back to where they were. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Yeah. You know, they're yeah, just exactly. rusty, you know. And conversely to that, um, say adults who've never played tennis before yep. and want to get into tennis, um, maybe take us through some, some of the things that you run here at, at Cairns International Tennis Centre, like... Um, Maybe let's talk about the adult coaching or, um, okay. or cardio tennis, for example. Yeah, all right. Well, um, we, what we try and do is we try, try and offer a complete uh, holistic pathway program for adults. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess you want to go right to the start. We do beginner courses. Mm. So we do a 10-week beginner course. We generally do a new beginner course every term for 10 weeks. And then what we try and do is offer a pathway out of that course. So, you know, in that 10 weeks, they learn to hit the ball, they learn the basic techniques and stuff like that. Some then go on and do another 10 week course, mm -hmm. beginner course, you know, the, 
But those that kind of learn a bit quicker than some of the others, they will naturally transition into um, maybe a social group or like a low intermediate group or something like that. And then, you know, they can transition into match play mm-hmm. or they can um, do the social night or they can do fixtures night on a Monday night. We have 64 adults here every Monday night playing three sets, you know, mm. or three half an hour matches. Um, and that's all levels, yeah? All levels, yeah. yeah. So we go, we go from elite grades. So we have four grades. Mm-hmm. We have elite grades, A, B and C, you know, and the C grades are some of them have probably just completed a beginner course, you know, mm. but then the elite grade are some of the best players in Ken's. Mm. So, you know, we we have an avenue for every single player that comes in. As long as they can serve and rally a little bit, mm-hmm. they're fine for, for, for fixtures, for example. Mm. If they can't do that, that's fine. We've got, we got coaching groups that cater to get them to that level. Um, so, and then you have something like cardio tennis, which is um, the, one of the most, well, you know, John, it's one of the most fun things to, to do on the tennis court. It's yeah. music pumping, <laughs> it's running around, no matter what your fitness or tennis level, it works for everyone. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you could have good tennis players like you with a complete beginner and you'll both get a decent workout and, and both have a great experience, you mm-hmm. know? So, you know, you, the coach has always got good energy. You've got to have yeah. a good coach has got great energy to run that particular session. Yeah. Um, but that's a great thing. I think that came out of the US going mm. back, you know, maybe 10 years ago-ish. So it's all about keeping the heart rate up. Keeping the heart rate up, yep. trying to keep them in what they call the fat burning zone. Yep. Um, we used to have like heart rate monitors and stuff like that when we started Cardio Tennis in Australia. We've kind of taken that out because most watches now have got heart rate monitors and stuff mm, like that. Mm. We generally do more of a step count. But in all honesty, um, what we've learned is that people don't do our cardio because they want to get 5,000 steps under their belt or they want to get their heart rate up to 150 for half an hour. Mm. They do it because they just want to have a workout and have fun. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, that... That in itself is probably the, the key to success when it comes to cardio tennis. Mm. So when it comes to adults, we've got beginner courses, we've got intermediate, we've got advanced coaching groups. Thursday night we do an advanced coaching group here at the tennis center. Last night was brilliant and fun. Uh, we have cardio tennis. Um, we have opportunities for them to become members here mm-hmm. so they can practice with each other. We have a social tennis, a social media group. So on uh, Facebook, it's called the Cairns it's called Cairns Social Tennis mm. and they're all members of this tennis centre and someone will put and I love it someone will put a post up and say hey I'm free this afternoon who's keen bang there'll be three oh, or four really? answers like yeah I'll be there I'll, I'll be there I'll be there sign up to that yeah yeah it's, it's <laughs> absolutely brilliant and it's right it's your it's your sort of level as well John and they're a great group of people yeah, you know okay. so it's a culture we're building here at the tennis centre mm-hmm. um, and uh, again something I love being a part of mm. so do you get a lot of um, adults who've never played tennis showing up and wanting to take up tennis. Yeah, I think, yeah, we do now. Yeah, because we do a lot of um, advertising and stuff like that on Facebook and, mm-hmm. and social media and stuff like that. That's the benefits of social media. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we do get a lot of interest. Generally, I guess mums, mums and dads. Mm. No, we don't, you, we don't often get too many beginners past a certain age. I think once you get past maybe 50-ish, mm. very rare we get a beginner tennis player at that age. Mm. Um, if we do, they're not complete beginners. They've played it in the past, yeah. but haven't played for 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I would put them back on a beginner's course. Okay. You know, So, yeah, we do get quite a lot of adults. I think, John, in all honesty, my passion has always been with kids. So I think it's something I neglect as a business, adults. Mm. I don't think I do enough for adults, but that is kind of definitely something 
we, we spent the first 18 months at the Cairns International Tennis Center building up what is our bread and butter, our junior program. Mm -hmm. Now is the time to start doing all the glam stuff and adult stuff is something we're gonna do a lot better mm. over the next 18 months. Awesome, Some, something to look forward to then. Yeah. Have you ever had any horror stories that you care to recount from um, <laughs> being a tennis coach? Uh, I think like most sports, uh, the biggest horror stories you're gonna get in most sports are probably parents. Mm. It's not, you know, like 99.9% .9 of parents are great. Mm. When you get that 0.1% you're in trouble. It's tough, yeah. you know, like uh, we had a horrific two years, two or three years on the Cassowary Coast where a particular parent took it upon herself to basically cut a long story short, her boy didn't get into a group, mm. a, a high level group that she wanted him to be in. The spaces were taken and I sort of said, look, it's okay, six months time, you know, we'll get him in, blah, 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 it'll be fine. That wasn't a good enough answer. Mm. And as a long-term result of that, um, she pretty much tried to rip the roof off our heads. Like she, uh, her son was going through an apprenticeship with us at the time mm -hmm. um, as a coach. A coaching apprenticeship. Yeah, co coaching apprenticeship. <clears throat> and, and she was best friends with my wife. Like it really went south. Oh, like wow. it was unbelievable how bad this situation was. And I'd never experienced anything like it before my whole entire life. Um, and yeah, so basically she, uh, she <laughs> tried to rubbish us. She uh, actually started their own program in competition to us, mm. used our database because she was in a position of, of power at mm -hmm. the tennis club. They got our database and emailed our whole database and made them aware that they were starting their own program and they were 30% cheaper and blah, blah, blah. And it was stressful, super stressful. I thought, yeah. oh my God, I've built this business up and I've upset one parent yeah. because <laughs> she wasn't happy with the decision I made. Yeah, And that was it. Like it was, she literally if i if she actually put an application in to be the coach at the club we were at you know mm. spoke to the committee and said hey you're you're paying wayne this much what we, to do you out of a job yeah do us out of a job Boy, undercut yeah you yeah completely undercast yeah wow. like it was horrific it was so scary at the time and yeah to an extent that i kind of thought geez we probably need to move like mm. we were that close to moving yeah um but we stuck it out we lost maybe two families mm -hmm. out of like 200 families yeah you know so just loyalty was phenomenal like we yeah. were so that's got a feel humbled well, in itself yeah, yeah well that's probably why we stayed you know because it was pretty tough but we, i think one of the reasons we stayed we, we owed it to our families to stick it out mm. um and i think as well john once you make that decision to leave mm. like we were on the verge of like selling the house and all that once you make that decision it changes your mentality You're like well okay i can deal with this because if she takes the roof off our head, we'll just go to somewhere else. Because mm. we've already made that decision in our head, we were gonna go somewhere else, you know? Yeah, that's right. So we th so then all of a sudden it gave us a level of resilience. And we thought, okay, we'll, you know, we'll stick it out. Kind of long story short, mm. um, I don't think his business particularly went great in the end. He realized that coaching, her son, realized that coaching wasn't really what he wanted to do necessarily. Mm. And um, they ended up closing up their program. Oh, wow. Um, and we ended up picking up all their kids that came that yeah. came over so long term we actually benefited yeah yeah but yeah so that is a horrific horror story yeah um, that was really really tough i don't think every coach has that mm. has that experience but it was a tough experience for us but john i thank that lady now 
Yeah. Because she made us sharper in business. Mm -hmm. She made us more, um, our communication got stronger. Yeah. I got better at what I do. Yeah. I look after my parents a lot better, you know, as in I communicate a lot better and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I always thought I did look after them, but I just communicate way, way better. So mm -hmm. I've become sharper as a, as a, as a, as a business owner. Mm. Yeah, a lot of these horror stories that I hear from people aren't typically um, job related. They're, they're more just dealing with other people, like the people relations thing. Yeah, definitely. Like it's just a clash of personalities, mm. you know? Like it's, um, it wasn't until 18 months ago, funny enough, so this happened like five years ago, mm. but it wasn't until 18 months ago, again, you know, when we had, when my son passed that she actually mm. apologized. Oh wow! First time, you know, it was well, just said, yeah, yeah. She mm. just said, "Wayne, I'm so sorry for what we've done to you." Yeah, you know, for that. You know, and we always wondered if she realized what she was doing, whether mm, mm. she was that narcissistic. If she had that, that she much actually, malice in her. Yeah, yeah, whether you know, but I think in it takes a tragedy like we've experienced for someone to go, "Geez, I was pretty rough on them," you know. My condolences, by the way. Oh yeah, of course it is. You know, it is what it is. Um, and this is a question for me and I'm hoping it's going to help other people. Yep. When selecting a racket, if you're just taking up tennis or if you're, you've been playing for a long time and you're thinking maybe a different type of racket because there's so many different types of rackets that you know, certain different, suit different styles, um, how, how do you know? Well, what's the best way to select a racket? Uh, not go for the cheapest. Right. <laughs> you know, that's a... And uh, tennis... Uh, it's actually one of the cheapest sports to take up. Like I took up golf and I spent, what, nearly four and a half thousand dollars on a set of golf clubs, you know? You take up tennis and the most expensive racket you can buy on the market is in the 300s. Yeah. You know, and that's the great thing about tennis. You know, mm -hmm. you can have the best racket out there. Mm -hmm. You can have, you know, you can have Barty's racket for 350 bucks, mm. you know? So... But that racket might not suit. No, it may not. No, suit a certain player's style, right? Yeah. So I think generally a couple of easy rules. Um, kids obviously have to have the right size racket. So the length of the racket is really important for kids. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, you need to speak to a coach about that. It, nothing drives me more crazy than a, a parent in our program that will go down to the local sports shop and buy a racket and they come and they go and the kid goes, oh, look what I've got. And I'm like, it's too big for you. Yeah. You know, like, what have you done? Like, you, all you have to do is speak to us. You know, yeah, you don't yeah. have, we don't even expect people to buy rackets from us. We don't make a lot of money out of rackets, but yeah. please, if you're gonna buy a racket, come get some advice. Yeah, we'll give us yeah. some advice. Um, when it comes to adults, uh, grip size is huge. Mm. Um, so the thickness of the grip. Mm -hmm. So generally as a rule, um, you have what's called a grip size two, which is for, juniors that are transitioning to full size rackets or ladies mm -hmm. uh, they seem to have a similar size hand so that's a grip size two so and the thing is if you if you john bought a grip size two you'd probably have tennis elbow within six months mm. so you could because you'll hold it tighter because it's smaller so you've got to get the grip size right and then the weight and then that's pretty much it yeah. like um there are rackets with much bigger heads which give you more power mm. so you might give that to a uh, an older person that doesn't generate power quite so easily mm -hmm. or maybe oh, dare I say it sometimes a lady might have one of those rackets because mm -hmm. they're not quite naturally as strong as a, as a man just you know physically uh, naturally so you might give them a slightly lighter racket but that's also to do with injury prevention as well you wouldn't go and give a lady a racket that weighs 350 grams Mm. Um, she'll probably have tennis elbow and shoulder injuries in no time you know yeah. whereas a guy could pick up a racket like that but again 
I probably wouldn't put you on a racket over 310, 310 grams, you know. I think most rackets, if you can pick a racket up between an adult, a male, between 290 and 310, mm. it's a good racket. For a lady, probably between 360 and 390 grams. A high performance, sorry, 260 and 290 mm -hmm. grams. I think high performance rackets, generally the top players are playing with heavier rackets because you get more racket speed. Mm. And they actually put lead, little lead strips on the end of their rackets to give them a little more weight in the end of the racket. So wow. there's lots of little things you can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, if you want a racket, speak to a bloody coach. Like it's not yeah. the most difficult thing to do, you know? So if you're just taking up tennis for the first time, come and maybe have a hit of cardio tennis where you can borrow a racket. Yep. And from that, Wayno can assess um what sort of racket would suit you yeah 100 percent. i mean i yeah. would never suggest a person buys a racket for less than 100 bucks because they're generally what we call a two-piece racket mm. and they're just got no power in them so mm. you know something you might buy from the local there i say it, i don't know kmart or something like that target. they're just not target or they're just not rackets <laughs> you can use yeah, on the tennis yeah. court you know they're rackets you use in the backyard mm. so around 100 bucks will give you a nice racket to start with mm. um but again it doesn't take much to get a really top racket it doesn't cost a lot well bueno let's wrap this up brilliant thanks so much for your time mate and um really appreciate how open you've been and you answered all my questions and um mate i've loved it like i've never done a podcast before <laughs> i've done a few radio interviews yeah, yeah. Um, and i've always quite enjoyed them yeah uh, but sort of sitting down with you i you know i knew it was going to be cool and it's going to be fun i yeah. know you and i get on well but yeah i've really enjoyed just talking and and, and chatting about my experience and stuff like that hopefully if this experience helps just one person yeah. that, you know, whatever in life, then it was well worth it, mm. you know? So no, thank you, John. I appreciate being on the show. And, you know, if, you know, in, you know, ever, whenever you need me to do another one, yeah. no problem at all. We can talk about other stuff. I'm all about it, mate. It's easy, man. <laughs> Thanks a lot, mate. Talk hey. soon. Cheers, John. Cheers, mate. All of the music on this podcast is written, recorded, performed and produced by yours truly. If you like what you hear, you can find most tracks at my SoundCloud at varying degrees of production. Details in the podcast info. If you're a singer and interested in providing some vocals for any of the tracks without vocals, hit me up, and who knows, you may feature on the podcast. Also, if you've got any suggestions or requests for a career which you would like me to cover, drop me a line, either on the Working Class Instagram or Facebook page. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Take care and stay motivated. Big thanks goes out to Wayne Fielder for today's episode. In respect to the profession that Wayne I gave up to be a tennis coach, today's track is called The Accountant. Enjoy. Enjoy.